Hello, I'm Aaron Blumenthal. And I'm Mike Cherney. And we are Two Halves Make a Whole, bringing you potentially useful financial wisdom and or wandering things. <laughs> a lot of rambling, a lot of yes. history, and hopefully something you can take home with you. Yeah. So we've been off for a couple of weeks, so we're back now. And we wanted to cover a topic that impacts everyone, has been a hot topic in the news uh Probably for the last year or so. I would almost say forever. Forever, yeah, that's probably better. But we want to talk about taxes. Yes, and there are very, very specific reasons why. But let's first actually start out with a little bit of history because that's that's my favorite thing in the entire world. Okay, so taxes really date back kind of to the beginning of time. Some of the earliest like cities that we know in existence. Actually, one of the first documents that we know in existence is actually a tax document that I think was written in cuneiform. I am not 100% certain on this, but it's from this, I think it's from the city of Ur. It is very old, and it literally is on a clay tablet saying, here's who, who paid what in taxes, right? Taxes have gone through the centuries, in, and taxes have come in different forms. So actually, people say that one of the reasons that the Roman Empire started failing was due to misuse of taxes and taxable revenue. It gets a little complex, but my favorite fact that comes from Rome and taxes is taxes were paid and, and, and soldiers were paid in salt. So this is actually where you get the word salary from. The word in Spanish or the word for that matter in Latin for salt is sal. And that's literally salary is actually where you get, um, is where you get paid. So you actually got paid in salt. So, you know, if you ever hear the phrase, this person is worth their weight in salt, that's where that comes from. Taxes then continued through the ages. Did we cover that in a previous episode? Most likely. (laughs) And by most likely, yes. Well, repetition is a good way to learn that. Exactly. (laughs) So my favorite reason for, um, for why... One of the reasons that we actually look at for why Henry VIII kind of went downhill and why England then became a constitutional parliamentary like style government is actually because Henry VIII ended up spending so much money on so many different things. They created what was known as the Privy Council, which is modern day you know cabinet for him, and he went. He then was beholden by the taxpayers, you know, parliament. And so that actually kind of led up to the political system that we have. But it's too bad they're not very beholden to the taxpayers <laughs> on both sides d- of the aisle. D- <laughs> depends. We'll get there. <laughs> History right now, first. Sorry, sorry, yeah. go on. So the, the American tax system, so we are famously a country of taxes. So 1764, you had, you had the tamp, uh, you had the tax and stamp act. And this led to Boston tea party. This led to chance of uh, taxation without representation, right? So they were right. So Britain was regulating the price of tea within the United States. This is all very famous, everything from Hamilton to, um, you know, School of Rock talks about this. But basically, we didn't want to be taxed if we didn't have a say in it, right? Because we didn't actually have anybody in Parliament in the UK, um, England at the time, that, you know, for to represent us. 
And the king basically, King George, I think it was the third. Third. Yeah. Basically said, LOL, nope. When we were like, can we get some representation here? He's like, no. The interesting thing, though, and I think this really doesn't get talked about in history school, was that King George was actually getting squeezed from the other end. Oh, yeah. Which is why the taxes kept rising on the colonies. So... The reason they got, yeah, the reason that this ta- these taxes were going up was because the Seven Years' War, which in the United States is known as the French and Indian War, had to be paid for. The other side note, Seven Years' War, the first official world war. I know we, we call World War One and World War Two in the 20th century, you know, the first and second world, world wars. This really is the first world war. You had battles in India. You had battles in what is now modern-day, uh, you know, Jakarta and Indonesia. You had battles in Europe. You had battles in North America, right? There were literally battlefields all over the world. From the, all the superpowers in Europe. Exactly. They were all fighting each other, whether it be in proxy wars or whatnot. And the Proxy wars where you use the local population to fight for you instead of your own soldiers. Against your perceived enemy who most likely is also fighting via proxy. Which is kind of sad. It is very sad. Then you're using two peoples who don't care to be fighting with each other, now fighting on behalf of somebody else. Yeah. That's a whole other topic. That is a whole other topic. Um, But I wanted to explain the background. (laughs) That's that's very valid. Um, So, yeah, actually, like you said, they were getting... So, in the UK, they were getting squeezed because this was like, you know, this was a tax scheme and they had to continue this. This actually leads to mercantilism, which is basically the reason we were getting taxed in the United States is be, at the time, you know, the colonies, um, is because Britain had this system of what was called mercantilism. And basically it means you have a captive market, right? So envision you go to Disney World, right? If you are in Disney World and you are now a citizen of Disney World, you are paying taxes with the most expensive food, right? Like, Disney doesn't let you bring in, to my knowledge, at least, or at least last time I went. Well, not to their knowledge. Yeah, not to their <laughs> knowledge. Yeah, they don't let you bring in, like, you know, a four-course meal. You have to purchase in the park. So you are most likely paying $80 for two things of Coca-Cola and... A burger and fries. A burger and fries that are, you know... Mediocre at best. Uh, yeah, we'll go with that. Let's, uh, we'll keep it PC. So that's what like mercantilism is, right? You have a captive audience. So the colonies were this captive audience and they were shipping things out to us. And then as a result, the whole system just like essentially collapsed because we were like, "Mm, nope. So a whole bunch of other things. We're going to skip ahead until the civil war. So, you know, basically 1776 all the way through until the civil war in the six, you know, 1860s. So that's where modern taxes in the United States start. 19, so in the 1860s, during the Civil War, we had to pay for the Civil War. Just like Britain had to pay for the Seven Years' War by then taxing us. Yes. And so, how did they do that? Abraham Lincoln had numerous choices that were available to him at the time. And the one he chose was the income tax. So yes, you, have, you literally have Abraham Lincoln to thank for for the income tax. That being said, there was more to the story. There's, there's, there's a lot more to the story. So not just him fully aware, but if you think about it, that's kind of the, the crux of where this comes from. Right. And actually, if you think about it, even 
an even crazier fact, the first armed forces of the United of the of the United States, really, I know they say it's the Marines who actually technically started before the United States, but actually if you look at our first Navy, it was called the Revenue Cutter Service. <laughs> it was literally paying, it was literally taking taxes from ships that came. And that was when we were as the United States, right? That was our first Navy. This taxes are ingrained in pretty much everything we do on a daily basis to the point where one actor, uh, I think it was in the 60s, commented that you, the only two things you can't escape are death and taxes. So, this actually brings us to, I said to you, there were many other options for taxes. While income taxes are the ones that we, we, we kind of know the most about. We feel the most. We, we feel the most, exactly. That isn't the only tax. And in fact, other countries like the UK currently do this in a very different way. So what the UK actually does, as opposed to taxing... so. Let's divide out the way that you that you earn and use money into that into those two categories, right? If I have a dollar bill, that means I either earned it or that means I am going to use it to spend, right? In some capacity, right? Like yes, I understand there's more than just in and out, but for right now, let's just keep it there. So, we in the United States do mainly do a majority of our taxing on citizens through this, this income tax. On the other end, though, there is what's known as a VAT, or a value-added tax. And that is a tax that is attached to spending, right? So these are, these are essentially two different types of ways to, to tax people. Another name for it is typically called duty. And why you, when you travel in the airports, you can go to the duty-free store. Because there's no value-added tax on the items you purchase there. That's the best place to get a Toblerone for the person that you definitely forgot to get a present for. <laughs> and you need to pretend like you, you got this in, like, wherever you were. I haven't had one of those for a long time. I, I literally have only ever had them in duty-free shops. Because they come in, like, that, like... Massive. Massive thing. Yeah, yeah, and you're just fantastic. like... Yo, my God, it's so good. It's, like, the best thing about traveling internationally. It's, like, I'm walking through that store. I hate when they spray you. Just like in the face with cologne, and you're like, Ugh. here, I'm a Toblerone. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like Toblerone. I'll take that in my like, it it's like it's like having a giant sub sandwich or grinder or whatever you want to call it, but it's just that of chocolate and nuts. Yeah. I don't really know what's hazel, in it. I think I think it's hazel. Yeah. But yeah, sorry. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> um, so those are just a couple of the the taxes that we probably feel more than anything else. There's. There's definitely, uh, in the United States, we know more as sales tax. Uh, everything that you buy at the store, you pay a sales tax rate based on the, the county, the state, and the municipality that you may be in. For instance, Aaron and I live in Wisconsin, and Wisconsin charges 5% sales tax on most items, except food, which is actually pretty nice. Mm, and liquor is different. Yeah, but food is typically no tax. Liquor definitely takes a a different tax, but 5% on most items that you buy in Wisconsin. However, if you live in the city of Milwaukee, you get charged an extra half a percent. Yeah. So your total tax, if you live in Milwaukee, ends up being five and a half. The rest of the state that is, uh, who doesn't have a township or municipality that adds additional sales taxes pays 5% for their their purchases. 
Yeah, and I would say, okay, something that we just mentioned um, is that we kind of just, it, it, we implicitly impl- we said this, but there are, I know, I was about to say, implied. yeah, plus implied, I know, I was about to say that, but those are flat taxes, right? That 10%, that 5%, things that we know, 15% on, uh, you know, on capital gains, which I know is, on, which is an income, right? But that 15% long-term capital gains, that is a flat tax, right? That it applies to every individual the exact same way. Um, as opposed to what are known as regressive or progressive taxes, right? So progressive or progressive, oh my God, I can't believe I just said it like that. But progressive taxes, the way that those work as opposed to having that 15% flat or that 10% flat for everybody, the more that you, the, the, uh, income taxes are actually progressive. So the higher you make, right? Everybody says, oh, you're gonna go into a new tax bracket. What that really means is you're going to be taxed at a higher rate because you earn more. So that is what's called a progressive tax. A regressive tax is the opposite. The less you make or the less that there is of something, the more that you're going to pay for it. Um, I'm struggling to think of any right now. I know that there's some with like luxury taxes, actually. If it's one of a kind, you're actually going to pay substantially more, right? Some artwork kind of falls into these categories and stuff like that. Creations, some crafts do. But for the most part, that you will only experience flat or progressive taxes yeah on the on the progressive tax side for income as an example when you get up into that next tax bracket it doesn't autom- it doesn't actually mean that because you say you've moved to that next tax bracket up that all of your income mm-hmm. is then taxed at that higher rate it's every dollar you make over that amount so say if the the threshold was a hundred thousand dollars and you're paying ten percent tax up to a hundred I don't remember the, the tiering offhand. Yeah. But say if you made if you were taxed ten percent up to a hundred thousand, and then you were taxed at twenty percent over a hundred thousand, then for the first hundred thousand dollars you made, you would get taxed ten percent, which is ten thousand dollars. And then for every dollar you made over a hundred thousand, say you made two hundred thousand that year, then you would get pay, you would charge. Oh, sorry, you would have to pay ten thousand in tax for that first hundred, and the second hundred you'd actually pay twenty thousand. So your total tax would be thirty thousand dollars your uh, realized tax rate or your actual tax rate would then be 15%. Yeah, exactly. And then you've heard people use the word standard deduction. What that actually does is as you're, t- so the way that you're laying this out, right? Envision that you have a hundred, a $100, right? And that's, that's all you've earned, right? The standard deduction is going to reduce the amount that's taxable, right? So suppose that that the standard deduction is is twenty four dollars, right? You remove those twenty four dollars. Now you have seventy six dollars. That's what you're getting taxed on. Suppose that you know the out of a hundred, yeah, not not out of a thousand. So yeah, out of a hundred. So that's so you have seventy six seventy six dollars that you're going to be taxed on, right? Um, now suppose that the you know the first tax bracket takes you up to you know ten dollars so and it's like one percent off of that ten dollars or we'll call it ten percent just to make you know make the math easy your first ten dollars one dollar gets taxed right now you go into the next tax bracket suppose that next tax bracket's going to pull you up 
to $50, right? And it's gonna be 20%. So for the next, you know, for the next percent, now you're gonna pull those 20 out and you continue until you basically hit the, the highest tax bracket that, you, that you're part of. So that's kind of how it works. That was a, an extremely terrible math example. So just trust me, it is not the same. It's, it's very similar to those problems with it, that you did in school where it's like what percentage of this, what percentage of that, and but build from there. The big gist of it is uh, it's actually, there's, there's a preconceived notion that if you move up into a tax bracket and you end up at the bottom of the new tax bracket, you're actually getting taxed much more than you would under, otherwise and then you therefore have less take-home pay. It's actually not true. Making more money, regardless of your uh, tax bracket, is still more advantageous to you. Even though you end up paying more in tax, you still made more money. And regardless of how much that tax ends up being, which um, as you get higher and higher, it becomes more and more for each new dollar you earn over that threshold, you've still made the bulk of that dollar over that threshold, even though you have to pay tax for that dollar at a higher rate than you would have under that tax bracket. Yeah. I think the the other things I would add on, on top of that are, there are other taxes, right? And they come in the form of, specifically in the United States, right? We also have um, what are called payroll taxes. So you instantly are gonna be, gonna be taxed when you, when you go through a payroll for, um, for Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, and sometimes one or two other things, depending upon your state, you're going to be pulled off. California. Up. California, yeah. You'll be pulled off. This will be pulled off both for state level and then um, at a federal level, right? So nationally as well. On top of this is going to be, are going to be other taxes, right? So there are things that don't look or sound like taxes that are taxes. So talking about those regret, those regressive taxes from earlier, the lottery, it's not, it's not necessarily like a straight tax, but you can look at that as being, as being regressive. Same with what are known as sin taxes, right? So the taxes that you get on winnings from, from, you know, either the lottery or from, gambling. you know, from gambling or even alcohol. Alcohol is technically a regressive tax. Um, it, it's going to affect the people that spend a smaller amount than those that would take more than it would people that spend a lot more. So that's, those are a couple of examples of regressive taxes. Now, that's a lot of taxes. So, But wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. So... One of the ones we were yeah. just talking about was actually uh, real estate tax as yep. we are both homeowners and looking at how much we end up spending. And it's interesting because real estate tax varies again by uh, municipality, by state, by region in the state. And some places like Chicago actually <laughs> charge real estate tax by um, like zip code and stuff. Yeah. Uh, actually certain blocks have different. Oh really? I didn't even realize <laughs> yeah. that. Holy cow. Uh, different aldermanic districts have different taxes. Oh, yeah. Those um, are fiefdoms. That's like old school yes. like serfdom. Very, very strange. So um, Milwaukee is actually a very high tax rate in relation to many other areas of the, the country. And if you go say, out of downtown Milwaukee, the, the real estate tax rate drops off quite quickly. Oh, upsettingly quick. 
real estate tax is only paid for by those who actually own property. If you're renting uh, or you don't own any property, so you live with your parents, you're not paying any tax on that. Yeah, I know I'm jumping in really quick, but the one thing that's actually worthy of note is there are actually essentially two parts to your taxes that you pay on property taxes, right? You pay the, the value of the property, then you also pay what is called improvements, right? Which is just like, first off, the most generic sounding thing in the entire world. It, it sounds like an Instagram handle, I'm well aware, but improvements on property actually refers to usually the buildings that are on it. Yeah, it's actually a great point. So if you just own land, you're paying a base rate of tax, mm -hmm. and then there's an additional tax for typically what would be your house. Yes, and sometimes if you look at houses, you definitely say to yourself, that's not an improvement on that property. <laughs> that's an entirely separate thing. Basically, 1990s design hell is my, fa is my least favorite thing in the entire world, McMansions. Those definitely, I think, those are a blight, and they should pay higher taxes. That's just my personal opinion. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> However, sometimes it'd be funny if uh, we actually have to make some rules on that stuff. It would, oh my god. <laughs> um, I would definitely have an all-star tax. I don't, um, for Smash Mouth's all-star, I don't exactly know what I would do with this money, but I just think that it should be taxed. Every when, time someone plays it. And Nickelback. I feel like there's like a list of bands that I would just be like, you're getting taxed. Can I tell a terrible joke? Yeah, go for it. Do you get a nickel back on taxes every time someone plays it? <laughs> I would give you my let's five. Move if my, yeah, let's move on. <laughs> Sorry, continue. <laughs> uh, there are actually uh, a slew of other taxes that can be levied against people, right? There's, uh, we can go into, I guess we can list them out. You could Wikipedia listed, you know, U.S. taxes if you want to find out more. Uh, some of them you may know about. Some of them we've covered. Uh, but it wasn't at quite the point we wanted to, to get to in this episode. We yes. wanted to kind of lay that out, lay out some of the history, and then jump into some interesting facts about taxes that you may or may not know or you had had some inklings of or you wanted to potentially know more about. And that is taxes or loopholes or deductions that can be made on the extremes of the income scale. Yeah. Okay, so... If you add all of these taxes up, right? So you add the regressive taxes, the progressive taxes, you add you add the income taxes, right? So if you add so if you essentially add all the VAT, value add add tax, and you add all of the income tax, and you look at it as a percentage of the income of each individual in the United States, you would notice there is there are 15 people that aren't paying their fair share, right? I say 15, I actually don't know what the, what, the ex, what the exact number is, but if you actually looked at this, it would look like a bell curve, right? Um, technically a leading bell curve, but that's a different story. Um, so people, you know, rightfully, that don't, that don't really make any money aren't paying usually a substantial amount of tax. That being said, the taxes that they do pay, they end up paying are a substantial portion of the amount that they do make, right? Think about it. If you were, if you're paying 10% or, you know, 20% or whatever on, you know, earning a hundred dollars, 
that's a substantial portion of, of what you're of what you're of what you're making. Versus the middle class, on a relative percentage basis, pays approximately the exact same amount. So say if I'm yeah. one person makes thousand dollars and they pay a hundred dollars in tax versus the guy who makes a hundred dollars and pays ten dollars in tax, both paying ten percent. So relative to your income, you're paying the exact same amount. But the crazy thing comes when you're talking about the exceptionally wealthy in the country. And this isn't the, you know, the, the famed 1% because it, the 1% is actually a shockingly large number of people. And those people are paying a lot of money in taxes, despite what the rhetoric leads you to believe. There's a portion of the 1%. That is, I think it's point one. It, it's less than point one, or it's about point one of the total population. But yeah. Now is where the curve starts to go vastly the other direction, whereas the poor and what the percentage of their income that they're paying in tax is high, even though the dollar value of the tax is low. When you're on the other side of the scale, the portion of income paid in tax on the exceptionally, you know, point one percent of the population wealthy scale, are paying yeah. a fraction of what everyone else in the country pays relative to, can't say their income because that's the loophole they found, but relative to their wealth and their wealth generation, um, generation being like how fast they can accumulate wealth, which for most people, normal people, is called income. The loophole is accumulating wealth in terms of assets and writing them off with liabilities. That's kind of the crux of it so when people okay so i am going to infer a lot of things in what i'm about to say so take that for what it's worth take that for what it's worth when people refer to the one percent what they usually are trying to refer to is a class of individuals that actually don't take income in the traditional way right every two weeks or every month they don't receive a check from their company where there's line items for, you know, payroll tax to be pulled out. There's, there's line items for, uh, you know, for all these other taxes and for, for things like that, right? These people instead use their assets, right? They'll, they'll get stop op- stock options or they won't be paid off of payroll. So as a result, at the end of the year, they are going to be paid, uh, they are going to pay taxes off of what of what they earned based off of usually just their assets, right? And as we've talked about before, if you if you're holding something for a while, uh, over a year, it goes into a long term's capital gains tax. So as opposed to be so as opposed to having, you know, a marginal tax rate of thirty five percent, your tax rate's fifteen percent, no matter how much you make, right? Then the other thing that's really crazy is those payroll taxes, they get cut off at a certain point. If you're making over two, I think I don't know what the cutoff is, but I think it's like one hundred and fifty million, one hundred fifty thousand, or two hundred fifty thousand. You actually stop paying up to a, up to that point. The uh, the you know after that point, sorry, after that point, you used to actually stop paying payroll taxes. Which is funny because everyone else is getting pinged. I think about three and a half for Medicare. About four percent for Medicaid, something yep. right around there. So seven percent for Social Security, so, and then the mega wealthy because they don't have that payroll tax that you're getting on your biweekly, typically biweekly check. They're not 
paying, or if they hit this threshold, I suppose, as well, they no longer have to pay into those systems. It's cheaper to be wealthy. Which is phenomenal. Yep. The other thing is, and so where a lot of this comes from is something we've talked about before, which is which is risk, right? So people that are wealthy usually actually don't bank at the, we'll call it the front part of the bank, right? They, they don't usually, so even in retail banks, like Bank of America or, you know, some even some of the smaller credit unions or credit bank or, you know, smaller banks, people that are wealthy actually don't bank at the front counter. They, they bank at what is called private banks. So these are banks within a bank, right? Um, these actually deal with the assets of what we traditionally call, you know, wealthy people, right? But for the most part, this is pretty much anybody that makes an accumulative household wealth above, I think it's $250,000. And as a result, you know how if you normally you get what's called, you know, like overdraft charges, you get all these different charges, private bank customers usually don't. In fact, they actually get preferable rates for, um, for even for any, any loan that they take. And then not just that, they also usually get um, preferable uh, return rates, even for usually non, non-earning, you know, uh, bank accounts, right? You know, like if you look at your bank account, your just standard savings account, it's usually like 0.01% or something. Yeah. But Essentially nothing. Yeah. But if you actually go to a private bank, it might be as high as 0.2%. Right, and this is a bank within a bank. Like Bank of America has has this. All the major banks do. So, and as we talked about in one of our earlier episodes for making money on your money using interest rates, while that point two percent might not seem like much because it's still a pretty low number relative to what most people are getting at the, we'll say like just the front counter of the bank. Mm-hmm. At that point oh one, it's twenty times more money, and when the person has twenty times more money already in the bank, they're making four hundred times as much interest as you. It, yeah, and is this right? That's not for us to say. To, to some extent, it is right because they are they are less risky. They are. They're definitely less risky, and there is a risk reward scenario for the bank as well as the client. What they bring to the table, it. It just brings an interesting dichotomy to how you think of things or how you're viewed in terms of essentially as a client, as a customer, or as a method of generating revenue for that bank. Yeah. Banks have shareholders. All banks do. Um, one thing that you might hear about in rap songs um, or hip hop or, or songs in general or just pop culture as it is, is what's known as the black card. Right. And the black card from uh, actually most credit card companies now have black cards. And the reason that these are popular with banks uh, and, you know, other lending firms is because is not and it has like zero percent interest on, you know, on any on anything. And you can buy there's no credit limit. Why is there no credit limit on these? Because they get a merchant fee that's a percent of the of the purchase cost, so even they, even with a small purchase cost, the reason there is no limit on these is because that incentivizes the individual then to spend more, and if they spend a tremendous amount, 
the credit card company is going to be getting a tremendous amount, even if it's only 2% versus, you know, historically, what is it like eight or like seven or 8% for, uh, for most other credit cards. That's why most cabbies will yell at you in New York if you use a credit card. Or an American Express. Yeah, they really yell at you. <laughs> I think that one's like 12% on cabs or something. It's, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot, but like, it's a different, but like, the reason American Express is able to, to do that is they have a different clientele. It's usually wealthier. And as a result, they're willing to, to put up with that because that means these people are going to come and shop. It's... It's one of those, it's an interesting dichotomy. And then with that, if you are the ultra, ultra, ultra wealthy, and yes, I am talking about, you know, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> like, like, let's just be honest. I'm talking about Jeff Bezos. I'm talking about Jack Dorsey. Um, Warren Buffett. Warren, eh, Warren, Bill Gates. Well, Warren and, and Bill Gates less so. I'm talking more um, Bezos, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, Dorsey. Dorsey. And Elon Musk, who I can't believe it took me that long to get to his name, but it did. Those people... It took him a really long time to get to that echelon. Oh my god, yeah, I know, right? Oof. But, and he's going to fall out, but that's a different story. But, we'll get there. Um, <laughs> but what they actually do, instead of... So they own a tremendous amount of assets, right? And in fact, Jeff Bezos barely takes a salary in comparison to what how much he's worth. Like, like I said earlier to you before we started, I think it's eight, I don't know why, I want to say it's like 80 grand. It's it's super, super small. Relative to the billions he has yeah. in stock. Yes. Thank you. Um, not chump change to yeah, most it, people. But. Yeah, it's not chump change to most people, but, but when you are the wealthiest man on the face of the earth, that is chump change. So the way he does things is he actually goes to a bank and says, I'm going to take a loan out with you guys. And the banks jump at this because he is the least risky person on the face of the earth to lend to. So as a result of him going to this bank, taking a loan out, he's getting what's called what we, what is called a liability, right? It's a negative it's in the red. So this actually helps him on taxes later um, because he's able to carry over that liability and say, look, I didn't make anything this year. In fact, I lost money. So he, you know, he's able to say, so he's able to create these liabilities. And then that, and then when he goes to that bank, takes that loan out, he now can go buy something. So he hasn't actually sold any of his stocks yet. So he doesn't have to pay taxes on the gains from selling the stock. Exactly. So what he ends up doing over over a long period of time is he builds up these huge this huge amount of liability, right? And now when he sells a stock or when he sells stock, because those liabilities have carried over for so long and the banks are happy to take, you know, like when, I think it's like right now, interest rates are like four houses or like 3.5. Three for a 30 year. Yeah, three for a 30 year, right? They're willing to lend to Jeff Bezos at basically what you and I get for our, um, you know, for our savings accounts, like 0. 0.001 or something. And the reason is because the sums that they're going to get it off of are substantial. It's not chump change. So that's how he's able to get away with a lot of this is by doing, is by kind of doing this backdoor thing back and forth. And once you build up enough liability, even when you sell a substantial amount, you know, he's going to have so much debt that it basically allows him to kind of erase the gains that he got. 
Yeah, there's a, actually a really great article. I think I sent it to you earlier. I was going to put it up on our oh, Facebook yeah. page. Uh, it was either from Forbes or the Wall Street Journal talking about how the mega wealthy are paying tax at a fraction of their net wealth. Because, again, if you're not taking a salary, you don't have – you're not paying payroll tax. You're not paying FICA or Social Security. Uh, you're, you're exempt from those types of taxes. And then beyond that, if you're able to just go and purchase – Assets and assets can be many different things, right? I think we talked about this in a yeah. previous episode. It could be property, it could be a house, it could be. I mean, Larry Ellison bought an island. No, <laughs> oh gosh. So you're you're able to acquire different things that you can treat as assets, and depending on how you structure it, uh, if you set up your own, say your LLC or your own business, you can purchase vehicles or other or planes. Yeah. At that level. And those are assets that you can depreciate the value of over time against your income and protect yourself against taxes. And while a lot of this is above board and normal, there's massive loopholes and uh, abuses of the system in in terms of just continuously taking debt that is meaningless relative to your wealth because you technically could pay it off any time and then using schemes to get around having to sell your shares or sell say your cryptocurrency or other valuable assets uh to then pay off that debt yeah and just really quickly going the the reason that we have a social security system is due to the great depression right what did people people basically worked until they died previously that's just like that's just a thing. Like if you were, you basically, the, the, there was a, an article in the BBC, right? That the, a couple of years ago, or I think it might've been in the Guardian, I'll have to find it. But basically they said one of the single most life saving things that ever happened was the invention of the eyeglass, right? I, your, you know, glasses. Why? Because up until, up until eyeglasses came around, your vision would get worse as you got older which means you couldn't continue to do, you know, minute work. You had to start doing physical labor the older you got. So people would just up and die at a certain point. I couldn't type without contacts. I, don't, I can't even see my laptop screen. I know. I, like, I would be blind. I would literally be a blind mouse walking into walls. I had LASIK, LASIK surgery. I had literally had lasers shot into my eyes so I could see better. Science is awesome. But <laughs> the, like... Before the 1930s, when we when Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed into into law the Social Security Administration, you had to rely on either charity, or your family, or you were just going to be destitute. Most old, most older adults in the United States at that time, particularly during the 1930s and the Great Depression, they just essentially died penniless. They had nothing to their name. He created like. Franklin FDR, along with a couple other people, I know I'm stumbling today for some reason, I uh, have no idea why, but FDR, along with a couple other individuals, basically created the, the Social Security Administration to prevent that from happening. So, it's, if you look at other countries, you know, you'll hear like welfare, like welfare states, or, you know, you'll hear benefits or something along those lines, benefit states. Scandinavian countries do this to to a great extent, but a lot of this actually comes back to that, you know, we 
Great Depression in the United States. And it is, it is a worthy thing to, to, go, to have for a country, right? It makes sure that people are actually able to take risk. There is a where the political debate, in my opinion, should actually be, is at what point does it mitigate people wanting to work, right? There's a there's a difference right now. The whole concept of like welfare queens and what and whatnot, I think, is distracting from what what is actually going on. This is a political uh, rant now, so I apologize, but I think there's a I think there is a balance point between the two, right? I don't know where I have no idea where that is, because the reason the reason four hundred one ks exist is because of a of a weird loophole in the law that started around like the nineteen eighties, and people were able to exploit it so they could pre tax, um, pull money out. Right? It was it's literally just a a misworded sentence in a tax law that that someone found, and people started using this instead of pensions. Pensions have their own problems, don't get me wrong, but that used to be the way that things would go is, there's, it's called the three-legged stool, right? Um, so this is actually where I know financial advice is going to sneak in. The three-legged stool was social security, pension, or 401k, and then your own money. Savings. Savings, thank you. The 401k essentially weakened. It, it was the 401k was meant to add the 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 guy that that found this loophole and you know started essentially selling the idea actually meant that to be a fourth leg on this three legged stool. However, companies are like mm, snip, and it weakens that pension that pension leg, so it became a two legged stool. But most most Americans can't would not be able to survive a $500 emergency charge. So the savings doesn't exist. So now you're on a one-legged stool, social security. Or welfare. Or welfare. And that's the issue, right? Yeah, and the sad part is just like uh, companies went to cut pensions and stopped funding them and then cut them all together for most of their employees, the government has, and this is partly political and it's not cited, it, the government has stopped properly funding social security because the money that is flowing in from our checks at 7% a check into social security is getting used for other things which is should be illegal because the money is going in there for that reason but it is not coming or is not actually getting allocated to it for that reason the other thing that's happening and I don't disagree I'm build I'm building on this yeah, all right yeah. the other thing that's happening is um, the birth rate has dropped substantially in the United States. The Social Security Administration would work as is if we maintained a birth rate of, I think it was 4.5. But, but if you had invested the right way if you invested, and you had put all the money in the right way, less likelihood of running out of money because i i honestly think that our generation is probably not going to get the benefit that we put in for our whole lives in sorry that was a long side tangent political rant but social security does tie into taxes because most people that are collecting a paycheck uh, are typically 
paying into Social Security, and there's a latent risk of us potentially not being able to get that back out because of things out of our control. Yeah, and then with that, as you were kind of alluding to, there are definitely you know pluses and minuses for every type of tax, right? Everything from you know the so the social security taxes that we're just talking about all the way through income tax these value added taxes uh real estate taxes they all pay for something and at some point we actually should we will talk about that because that's actually also an interesting topic as well what are you actually paying for why are you doing that as well what do you get for the taxes that you pay and all that money you no longer get to take home exactly and why why is it good and or why is it bad right? It's both. Then the other thing is just kind of tying this up in a little bow right now, the regressive, progressive, and flat taxes all have positives. They all have negatives. And ideal tax policy would would balance all of those out in a way that is both equitable and, and fair. Um, that is something that we cannot tell exactly or at least I can't, um, 100% how that should go. But there's a lot there. One thing that we're actually going to do, and this is a great place for us to kind of kind of bring it all together, is we're actually going to be talking to a financial planner um, very, very soon. And we'll, you know, kind of pepper him with questions and kind of, and kind of expand on this at that point. So yeah, he'll be able to, to bring in or shed some light on on taxes, what you should look for in a tax accountant, what you should look for in a financial planner, different things that you should be potentially planning for from finance and can actually give uh, real advice and direction versus uh, us, us two schmucks. <laughs> <laughs> that have potentially useful information that you can take away yeah. and take home with you. So with that, we're going to wrap up and we will see you in a couple weeks. Yep. I'm Mike Cherney. And I'm Aaron Blumenthal. And we're two halves make a whole. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good night.